0: The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8, Andrew Jackson's Second Term. Welcome to the American History Podcast, hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, so welcome back. Um, This is the seventh episode, or eighth episode of season two, I should say, and today we'll be wrapping up the discussion of Andrew Jackson's presidency. Um, Before we get started, let me just apologize for the overly long absence, a couple weeks here, Um, been very busy here with life interfering, um, grad school work, and we were switching our website hosting over, so all of that kind of made the perfect storm, but I'm back, and hopefully we'll be back on track from here on in. Um, Also, I'd just like to um, say that before I get started, I'm going to leave out one aspect of Andrew Jackson's presidency, probably the most controversial part, and that's Indian removal. I think this topic deserves its own um, dedicated episode rather than a quick review or just a quick overview Um, which is what it would be if I kept it in an episode full of other topics. It would be just one or two paragraphs. Um, So you're going to get that topic coming up here shortly. As always, feel free to follow our Twitter account at American Hiscast. You can also check out the website to see the sources that are being used in Season 2 and sign up for email updates over there. Um, The website is www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. All right, so let's get started. 1832 was an election year, the election year that would feature a showdown between two rivals and enemies, Henry Clay, nominated by the National Republicans, and Andrew Jackson, running for a second term as a Democrat. The fact that he was running again was against one of his core beliefs. He believed the president should serve only one term in office. However, um, his cronies or his um, followers or whatnot, they convinced him to stay and run again. So, that's what he did. Now, Clay, as we've discussed, was the author of the American system. Um, He was a war hawk. He was a senator from Kentucky. The only time that Clay wasn't hawkish on war was when the war was being fought by one Andrew Jackson. In his run for the presidency in 1832, Clay decided to make the issue of the recharter of the Bank of the United States a centerpiece of his campaign. This was, as it turns out, a mistake of epic proportions. Clay was outmaneuvered by Jackson and the recharter failed, but more about that in just a second. In the end, the election was a huge victory for Jackson, who won in an electoral landslide, 219 to four, uh, 49. Now, Jackson was able to do this because he had the support of the masses to such a degree that it's going to overwhelm the vote of wealthier Americans – and it was the wealthier Americans who tended to support Henry Clay. So the 1832 campaign is notable for reasons other than the fact that Henry Clay lost the presidency again. First, you get the anti-Masonic party becoming the first third party in an American presidential election. They opposed the, um, the secrecy of the Masonic order, an 18th central fraternal organization using rationalist Christian doctrine, um, ritual symbolism, and civic virtue. The Masons were famous for recruiting upwardly mobile middle-class professionals, business leaders, and politicians, people like George Washington and Andrew Jackson. The organization was accused of using its membership to influence appointments to offices and to gain economically at the expense of the masses. And because of this, the party was attractive to evangelical groups that were eager to fuse moral and religious reforms with politics, for example, keeping the Sabbath day holy. In the meantime, the Jacksonian Democrats were against all government meddling in social and economic life. Now, the second notable aspect of this election was the fact that national nominating conventions were organized by all three parties in 1831 through 1832, a bit like today's system, except that in those days the convention actually nominated the candidate. Now, as I'm sure I've said before, Today, the convention is more of a week-long propaganda infomercial, and nothing truly newsworthy takes place. Also of interest was the fact that the National Republicans and the anti-Masons had formal party platforms. Now, this is something the parties still have today, although the platform, quite honestly, is a joke. The candidate never abides by it anyways. Um, Come to think of it, the party doesn't pay any attention to it after the platform passes. And so that brings us to the Jackson – or the Jacksonian economic policy. The main aim of the policy was to divorce the government from the economy, in essence to establish a laissez-faire system. The three major aspects of this policy were, one, anti-monopoly. Jackson believed that the common man should have a chance to succeed, and monopoly was anathema to that belief. Number two, return to Jacksonian democracy. The rule of government should be limited. And number three, they wanted to give more power to the states to promote equality of opportunity. They believed that concentrating power in the central government removed it, the government, from the people. And what happened is that you ended up promoting the interests of the powerful over the weak. So their idea was that if you brought the government back closer to the people, it would give more opportunity to the people. Consequently, this leads to the end of the Bank of the United States. Now, again, as I have mentioned previously, Jackson distrusted the Bank of the United States. Um, he referred to it as the moneyed monster. Ironically, he might have tolerated the Bank of the United States um, recharter in 1836 if it had included some reforms of the system. But instead, Henry Clay thought he would use the bus against Jackson in the election of 1832 and he pushed to have the institution rechartered two years early. The recharter, in Clay's mind, would put Jackson in a bind. If he signed it, he ended up alienating Western supporters. If he vetoed it, he ends up alienating the wealthy and influential people in the East. Jackson famously says, the bank is trying to kill me, but I will kill it. So what does Jackson do? Well, you know what he does. He vetoes the recharter in 1832. He assails the bank as monopolistic and unconstitutional, two charges which I feel are correct. Furthermore, he criticized Nicholas Biddle, the head of the bus, for alleged favoritism towards the elite, and for the fact that the bank um, foreclosed on farmers in the West a key Jacksonian constituency. Now, there's a bit of controversy in that some charge Jackson is acting as if the executive branch is superior to the judicial branch. This comes from the fact that the Supreme Court ruled in 1819 that it was constitutional in the landmark case McCulloch versus Maryland. However, I'd like you to um, keep in mind the fact that the Supreme Court is not infallible. They're just a group of highly connected lawyers. They're not some council of holy philosophers whose rulings are the equivalent of Moses bringing down the Ten Commandments. Um... So this argument that Jackson was acting as if the executive is superior to the ju- judicial, to the judicial, it can be reversed. The supporters of the bank acted in this case as if the judicial is superior to the executive. Furthermore, keep in mind that the original intent of the Constitution, the judicial branch does not have judicial review. There was no plan for the Supreme Court to be able to declare laws unconstitutional. Now Jackson's masses or Jackson's message, I should say, appealed to the masses. It was so popular that he ended up angering his enemies in Congress and the Senate censured Jackson. That censure was later expunged from the record by the Democrats, but as you can see, this was getting nasty. In the end, the veto holds, and Clay's plan fails, as does his attempt to win the presidency. Now, there are some arguments for the Bank of the United States, and I'll present them here. So, uh, you know, I don't want this to be a uh, case of me simply propagandizing towards you. Now, first, the proponents argued that the bank reduced bank failures and it issued sound paper currency at a time when the country was flooded with depreciated paper notes from local and state, bank, state banks. I would remind you that um, correlation does not prove causation. It's a logical fallacy. Sometimes you'll see it written in Latin, cum hoc ergo propter proper hoc, translated directly as with this, therefore because of this. The Jacksonian period was one of general economic expansion with the firm first boom, bust economic downturn in American history coming in the wake of the establishment of the Bank of the United States in 1815. Um, if you only look at, say, the Jackson administration, um, then you would certainly see good economic times. Um, But that is not necessarily due to the Bank of the United States. In fact, you might say it was despite the Bank of the United States. Um, There are arguments for both. The next argument brought about in support of the um, Bank of the United States or the bus is that it supposedly spurred economic expansion by making credit and currency available to business. Well, how does it do that? It does that by inflating the money supply. In other words, it creates a boom. What happens after the boom or when the bubble bursts? You get the economic bust. Finally, the supporters of central banking argue um, that it, the central bank, is a safe depository for federal funds. Well, of course it is. It's backed up by you, the people. If need be, the government will simply raise your taxes to cover any expenses. So in the aftermath of the veto, Jackson, as mentioned, wins the election. But he wasn't satisfied knowing that the bank would die in four years. Instead, he decided to destroy it as a political force and, at the same time, weaken the bank's president, Nicholas Biddle. Jackson transferred federal deposits from the bank to 23 state banks, or what were – sometimes you'll see them referred to as pet banks. Now, this was overseen by Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Roger Taney, uh, who would soon be appointed chief justice to the Supreme Court. This effectively killed the bank four years early, and it was all because Clay thought he could outmaneuver the president. In the aftermath of this, in 1836, Jackson issues the Specie Circular. Um, This was an executive order stating that public lands had to be purchased with hard money or specie, not paper currency, gold or silver. The normal narrative is that by 1836, wildcat currency had become unreliable, especially in the West, I'd suggest that paper currency is always unstable. Just in the United States, since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, the U.S. dollar has lost about 95% of its value. That doesn't sound too stable to me. Further, the usual narrative says that this led to further inflation. Um, I'm not sure that I can agree with that. Um, There was no central bank inflating the currency, but you do get pet banks inflating the paper currency. Um, But that's not – being used to purchase land. Essentially, what is going on is that the economy is trying to readjust to all these changes, and that means that you're going to get a crash. And that crash happens in 1837. So that leads us to the election of 36. This is the first election featuring the Whigs versus the Democrats. The Whig Party, they're going to get their own episode here in a month or so. But suffice it to say, for now, that the party emerges in 1834 when Clay and Calhoun join forces to pass a bill censoring the president for removal of federal deposits from the Bank of the United States. Um, These two were united in their mutual hatred of Jackson. But what happens is that this will evolve into a national party of groups alienated by Jackson. So you're going to get supporters of Clay's American system, states' rights advocates offended by the anti-nullification views of Jackson, the large northern merchants and industrialists, evangelical Protestants, many of whom were anti-Masonic in 1832, and finally nativists who opposed Irish immigration. You would think that Clay would be the party's first nominee, but you're wrong. That honor fell to William Henry Harrison, the hero of the Battle of Tippecanoe, who gets the nomination over Clay. Now, as for the Democrats, they nominate Martin Van Buren, Jackson's handpicked successor. Jackson, who was old and in poor health, decided against a third term. Instead, he thought he could have a third term through Van Buren. In the end, the Democrats win 170-73. to And this wasn't all that eventful of an election, except that now you've got two parties at the national level, the Democrats and the Whigs, who will dominate politics for the next um, 18 years or so. All right, so that brings us to Jackson's legacy. I'm going to present you with the standard take and then kind of my own take on his presidency. So the standard narrative would say that on the positive side, he demonstrated the value of strong executive leadership in the tariff controversy of 1832. He was seen, perhaps often was seen, and maybe was, the champion of the common man in politics. The third thing on the positive side is that he established the Democratic Party, And sparked the two-party system with the Whigs and the opposition. Now, the standard narrative um, would present the negatives as, number one, the spoil system, which led to political corruption. Number two, killing the Bank of the United States, which leads to bank failures in the Panic of 1837. Number three, the species circular hurts Western farmers. Number four, flouted the authority of the Supreme Court. Vis-a-vis Indian removal policy, which we'll talk about again in a future episode, and the bank issue, number five, Indian removal, and number six, the cabinet crisis, and his break with Calhoun, which results in increasing sectionalism. So the standard narrative has him coming down with far more negatives than positives. Now on that I agree, but I see almost all of what Jackson does as a negative, starting off with the fact that he had a militaristic view of the executive branch. He even be preferred being called general to Mr. President. Now, the one good thing was the bank veto of 1832. As historian Brian McClanahan notes, it is constitutional bliss. If you read the veto message, he notes that the bank's advocates said the issue was settled thanks to the legal precedent set by the decision in McCullough v. Maryland. Furthermore, he says that uh, precedent is a dangerous source of authority, Unless the precedent is from the people and or the states, in which case there was precedent to argue against the bank. He notes that, based on congressional approval or disapproval of a central bank, the issue is tied two to two. If you look to the states, the disapproval wins out by a margin of almost four to one. So he says precedent then does not favor approval of the bank. In the end, this is not actually a constitutional principle on which Jackson is standing um he is simply a way this is simply a way for him to get back at two of the men on his personal enemies list henry clay and john marshall you could say that jackson is very much like richard nixon or the clintons in that he kept a personal enemies list and if he had the chance to put you on it he would put you on it he went off the rails when he removed federal deposits and he puts them into the pet banks that was just out of bounds Um, So he's using illegal and unconstitutional means to kill an unconstitutional institution. Two wrongs do not make a right. Furthermore, he really does act like a monarch, increasing the power of the president, and that in no way can be seen as a positive. When he argued against nullification, he wrongly asserts the Constitution creates a nation, not a league, and right there he's just plain wrong. He asserts that a state may not secede from the union under any circumstances, and that's just crazy, at least in my opinion. If the federal government acts in a tyrannical manner, are the states supposed to just sit back and take it seriously? So in my estimation, when you take this and you add it up, the negatives to the negatives already mentioned, um, you've got a pretty bad president, one who sets a dangerous precedent for the future, and one which will be followed, unfortunately, by other demagogues, people like Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and others. Okay. Well, I hope that wasn't too controversial for you. Um, That ends, for the most part, our discussion of Jackson. Like I said, we will have a separate episode dedicated specifically to his Indian removal policy. In the meantime, feel free to follow me on Twitter, at AmericanHisCast. You can also visit the website to view the sources that I've used to create these episodes this season, um, sign up for email updates. Um, Finally, I have a favor to ask. Please, please, please go over to iTunes and give us a review, or if you're pressed for time, just rate the show. Leaving a positive review or rating us five stars helps others to find us. If you have a criticism, please email me, and you can do that from the website, or simply email sean at com, And I will try to answer that as soon as I can. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.